Hey, how's it going? It's another episode of the After School Spectacular. And this week, I got my buddy Tom on, and he's a history teacher. He'll be our first history teacher on the podcast. And he's also a great friend of mine, so without further ado, here we go. Okay, here we go. So we're recording now. I'm here with my buddy Tom. Um, He is uh, one of the people I worked with my first year teaching, so since the beginning, and we've maintained friends since then. Um, And uh, Tom was, I think you're going to be the only master teacher we had on here so far. So you're the big leagues now. (laughs) <laughs> it was a mentor teacher, to be oh, exact. Mentor. Okay. I, didn't, I didn't get to that uh, Leslie Lehrman section of, of excellence, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, you're also, this is, this is a uh, pretty diverse, so you're the first uh, white male teacher. We had one white guy, but he wasn't a teacher. So we've had two black men. You add gay to that. I'm the first yeah. gay oh, yeah. podcast. Well, that that we know of, that we know of. This <laughs> first openly gay, you know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, man. But yeah, I, I, was, I was. You were one of the first ones. I got this idea. Um, so so uh, my wife obviously bought me all this equipment for Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And um, I also I got this idea though because um, uh, one of my roommates uh was a home was a teacher right and she was homeschooled so i thought that was crazy yeah and then uh not crazy just interesting i should say it's not <laughs> like a negative so i thought that was interesting and then i just started thinking about like how different uh all the teachers i've worked with were you know and like i had my, my brother-in-law was a teacher uh, we had mr queen on here um and then just just different different teachers so far and, I've, and they've all been uh just a lot of very diverse upbringings i know like for me personally the schools i've taught in in ohio are drastically different than the ones i've taught in and the one i went to in ohio as you say versus the ones i've taught in in the bronx and like you know obviously it's been almost 20 years you know for me uh 13 but um it's also just you know uh everything's just different and uh i would say i'm sorry continue yeah, you you were um, you've only taught New York City, right? So I have been teaching exclusively in New York City since two thousand and seven. Um, awesome. Very much like what you were saying, my my not my not only like has teaching in New York City been completely different uh, than just my you know regular schooling. It's just been uh, shell shock. It's it's that different. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. So I went to um, schools in Westchester County. Um, okay. kind of like an interesting caveat. Um, I grew up in a town called Elmstrom and they have their own high school called Alexander Hamilton high school. And, you know, it was a mediocre type of school. Um, but the way that they did the zoning, um, my house was actually zoned, uh, for Mount Pleasant schools, which were much mm. better schools. Um, so I was very fortunate, even though I was in a, I, literally, I was on the other side of the tracks, quite literally, <laughs> I actually went to fairly wealthy high schools. Nice. So I've had this really interesting um, kind of view over the years of always being kind of like the poor person around rich people. And mm. so it's been very interesting that, you know, people are shocked. Like I went to my high school reunion and I think the most ignorant comment I got um, when I told this guy that I was working as a teacher in New York City, he goes, oh, one of my buddies did that for a couple of years before he went to his law firm. And I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, it was kind of like... Um, a bit disconcerting that people think that way, but that's how people think about it. Um, a lot they of people- They act like it's waiting tables or something. Compl- uh, say that again? I said they act like it's like waiting tables or something. Exactly, yeah. there's no respect for the profession. Um, wh- wh- no matter what part of society you look at, I think that you know everybody understands the power and importance of a teacher to inspire students. Um, but I think all too often, um, we're kind of seen either as the buzzkills in society or, you know, the last, I, th- I guess, like vestige of ethics, considering everything that's going on around the world with uh, COVID, uh, the fact that we're just allowing people to go bankrupt <laughs> and not assist them. 
Um, you know, oh, I'm not the most moral person and I don't want to preach that, you know, depending on your morality, I should be thrown off a roof or stone. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, we, you help your fellow man and it's in this hyper um, wealthy elite of which um, many of the students of, uh, I basically went to school with their children have this view. And so it's been quite a, quite a bipolar type of experience, if I can say it that way. No, I mean, that's, that's exactly like, uh, that's exactly how I would say it too. You know, it's people, people view teaching so negatively and it's like, um, like even like TV shows I used to watch, like I was watching the Simpsons they make every teacher look like an idiot, you know? And it, it's like, uh, like, I love the Simpsons, I love the show, but it's like, um, that's how people think, like, like, the, like, we're a bunch of, like, you know, morons, you know? And it's like that we then, personify, it's teachers in a lot of ways personify the adult that the kid can think that they know better of. And so then they take that and they run with that in their adult life. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, for example, he's our, he's my age, um, he was born in 1984. Um, you know, just kind of like this unchecked individualism that's always, um, yes, dear, you're right. Even though you failed the test, you get an A. Um, that type of behavior, I don't think you can any longer sit here and say it has no real world consequence. Oh yeah, look how they're talking to doctors now. Like they're the like they're the dummies. Like <laughs> you know, people just not believe in. Well, okay. as the ad say, you, know, yeah. <laughs> you ask your doctor for the pill. That's what yeah. she said. Um, yeah. So I really wish I, I just moved recently and I wish I, I had this book on hand. It's an excellent book called The Death of Expertise. How, you know, we just don't trust people who actually know what they're doing anymore. Uh, we have Wikipedia, we have all of this online access. And so, you know, we all think, you know, we read two seconds and we can, you know, realize the vaccine is a hoax, for example, or something stupid like that. Yeah. I mean, like, I remember we, uh, it's all, it's my first year teaching, you know, was 2016. So I got to see, I started in August with Obama and by November we had Trump. And I remember seeing like, uh, you know, during that election PD, people just uh, were very, you know, uh, arrogant and everyone thought like, oh yeah, you know, he, he's gonna lose by a landslide. And I, I remember just like looking at my phone and just seeing, um, I think you me, and somebody else, we were actually watching it while- Yeah, I was on your laptop. It was your yeah, laptop. Because at the end of the day, um, what was happening in that event is that there's a complete loss of professionalism. Mm. It doesn't matter who the president is. You can disagree with him. I disagree with him. But it's, a, it's an historic event. And it wasn't yeah. treated as such. It was just, let's move on with business. And it was like, I, I just had like uh, a look at like, because uh, I was in New York, but I could see all my friends from like high school virtually through like the internet with Facebook and Instagram and stuff. And I was just seeing people that I, you know, I love to this day. I'm still, you know, I'm not hate them or anything, but just seeing these like polar opposite views from like where I'm living, from where I'm from, and it was it was drastically conservative now. Uh, with and like Ohio has always been you know, one of the swing states. Um, and it's like, it's it's just, just watching this was uh, unreal, you know? And with this past election, you know, seeing the same thing, I'm not gonna lie, I was freaking out. I was like, oh, he's gonna win again. <laughs> and then like, even to this day, you're seeing stuff, was 140 uh, something Republicans are trying to uh, like get him still to win. It's like, it's, it's January, it's over, you know, let it go, but it's just, it's yeah, yeah, and I mean, that's that's uh, scary. That's that's freaking yeah, nuts. A lot of, it, it's it's frightening, and I think a lot of it connects really with a lot of the things that I've been seeing in the classroom for a while, which the which the it's the crowd knows better. Mm. Everybody else knows better, and and I hate to hit on this note again, but I think it's just bearing out, um, like the Republicans that are going to challenge the election intellectually they know that they're wrong what they're afraid of is a loss of power and that loss of power and not challenging their own constituents is why they're doing this and they're not thinking through in many ways how much more dangerous this country is going to become within four years as a result of their actions 
Yeah, and it's it's like there's there's, there's got to be just a few like you know I mean a lot of like just kind of scumbags in there because like, we're still getting texts saying like to donate to Kalema Harris you know or donate to Biden or something and it's like like I got, I got one over the break you know and it's like I gotta donate it but it's like some some people are just trying to get some money out of this obviously but it's um, capitalism you got to do what you got to do yeah and I mean. Like you just said, like you you see it in your classroom, especially as a history teacher, um, but like even as a science teacher, like I had I had kids I have to argue with about stuff that I never thought I had to argue about, like the world being flat, or if vaccines cause autism, you know. And it's it's uh, it, it's got to where it's like, it's overwhelming, you know. And it's like uh, I I, I, I like jokes, you know, that I, I tell about it to kind of just break the tension mm-hmm. and keep it moving. But it's like it gets it gets to where it's like. Like there, there's certain things they didn't teach you in grad school because they didn't think you'd have to worry about it, you know? I just think that it, like from the history perspective, there's just so, it's like, what do you teach nowadays for history? Are we teaching social movements, which belong and you must? Are we teaching political movements or are we teaching economic movements or are we teaching a narrative? Like, what are we teaching? So history has become more difficult to teach in the sense that there's nothing that, there's an aligning view, but it doesn't align to what the state wants you to teach the kids. If that makes it's sense. Not, so no, no, example, it's the same with science. Yeah, same with could, science, yeah. You could teach an anti-imperial Black Lives Matter curriculum and the kids would still fail the regions, not because of a, a skill deficit or whatever, but the content isn't honored within the way that the state standards work. And so even if you want to do your best and teach in a culturally relevant way, you're not benefited from that. In fact, you're actually penalized for it. And then at the end of the year, you'd have to explain to the kids why you didn't do the best that you could have on the exam. Yeah, I mean, that's like one thing I was kind of like happy about with like one of the the few like silver linings with COVID was like that there wasn't a regents because I got to kind of go in more with stuff that was I mean, still in the curriculum, obviously, I'm not going to just teach whatever I want, but I was going more into like the stuff they were interested in and like just seeing them actually, you know, show up to class on time now, you know, and like be interested in sending me emails later on. Oh, I saw this. I want to talk about, you know, and um, especially with like my elective class, we're just going crazy. And like they they were really getting into it um, with all the astronomy and stuff. And it's like, like that, that should be the way school is. That's the way people um, pretend school is, you know? And I mean, I, I remember like thinking back, there were definitely a lot of teachers I had that we got to do a lot of fun stuff. But I remember thinking like there were teachers that definitely wanted to teach certain things mm-hmm. and we, we were interested in it. And they were like, we'll get to this if we have time. Yeah. And we never got to it. And that was, that, was a, that was a recurring thing. So I try not to say that. I don't say we'll get to it if you have time. I'll say I will give you extra credit if you, if you want to research this, you know, mm-hmm. definitely. Especially remember, like with a, a kid that's finally interested in something that's just like never, never raised his hand in class the entire year, and now you get to March and he won't, he won't put his hand down. He always has a question about something. Exactly, you can't dim the spark, and the moment yeah. that they actually have it, you have to find a way to actually encourage them uh, to kind of go forth and find a way to really, you know, get in depth with it. It reminds me of a kid that I had, Mark, many years ago. Um, it's when I could get away with lecturing before Danielson. And so I, w- I kept on going off because one of the things that really concerned me about uh, the kids in the generation that's coming up and you know more so now is just how exposed they are to um, just entertainment and just oh, yeah. how, how they're exposed and, and how that changes their brain physiologically and their attention span and, and just the way that we have human to human interactions and connections. Um, and I think it's for the worse in terms of the quality. Um, but he came back to the school and he's like, Mr. Um, he goes, I loved you as a teacher. And he goes, I've read this book. You recommended this book in class. Um, and it was called, um, I believe it was by Neil Gaiman called uh, Educating Ourselves to, uh, excuse me, Entertaining Ourselves to Death. And I'm like, you know what? I feel really good about that. Awesome. I'm happy that that message got out there uh, beyond anything else that I taught. Because the content in large, in large ways that doesn't matter as much as the connections that you actually make with the kids and the message that they take with them throughout the rest of their lives. And I think 
what saddens me is like, I've been teaching for 13 years, but there are not a lot of teachers that I've been working with that have had that longevity. Um, in this new school that I'm at, I, I do have that. So it's nice to see that they have that too. But I wish that more teachers would experience that and actually see, you know, the fruit that gets born from their work that they do. Yeah, 100%, man. And it's like, um, like now as like a parent, you know, like uh, I, I never, you know, just my first time having a kid, so I never really thought of it this way. But it's like, we had to do this, um, this test for our son he's he's one he's mm -hmm. one years old and it's all these stupid like you know silly things they want you to do with the kid to make sure he's okay mm -hmm. and some of them are very vague like questions it's like can he pick up a string with only two fingers his front finger and his thumb but like he might grab it with his whole hands so i'm like trying to get him to pick up the string with just the two right. fingers and then he finally does it and it's like does that count or how many attempts was it like it was a very very loose test you know mm -hmm. but you you start uh worrying like oh no is my kid is my kid gonna have a learning disability? Is he gonna the IEP is gonna be special ed? And it's like, um, I like had to say that like to my wife, I like I like made a joke. I was like, you know what, if he if he is though, what's what's cute is that uh well, I mean, what's what's awesome is that we're both special ed teachers. So we would have, you know, this is the best possible situation to have a son in that situation. But it's also like just all the all the stigma that a lot of these um students get for being special ed, you know? And like, I had an IEP when I was a kid, you know? And now I teach kids who have IEPs and I have to write IEPs and all this stuff. And um, it's like, a lot of these parents, they have this like, um, they're, they're self-conscious about their own kid because of the, the, the certain standards they're being judged by, you know? And I remember there was like some cheesy poster um, that I saw, it was like something about like, you judge a, a fish by his ability to, to fly or climb a tree or something, you know, he's going to fail the test. Something like that. It was actually a famous quote. But uh, anyways, um, what I'm getting to is like now, you know, uh, to me, it's like the, the way that all these these standards and the, the rubric and the Danielson and everything, like it's, it's really limiting what teachers can do and it's limiting what students can do, you know, because now I'm not going to be be able to do all the fun stuff with a student that they might be interested in mm -hmm. because I'm too busy trying to make sure that they do a turn and talk, you know, or, or uh, at the risk know, of, of starting diagram. like George Carlin, when you were explaining, <laughs> when you were explaining your son, whatever happened to a kid just being a kid, whatever happened to them yeah. exploring naturally. And I exactly. think there are elements of, of, of being cautious for development, but I think a lot of what runs the education system right now is um, really more at the end of the at the end of the game, which is what college is my kid going into, and mm -hmm. if that and the fact that that's something that you're worrying about, and I'm not saying you, but I'm saying like this early because you can't yeah. even look at the parents on the uh, what is it like the Upper East Side who are spending forty thousand dollars to send their kid to pre-K, then yeah. you wonder why the, why the kid has depression at five. Yeah, like, I mean you should be having panic parents, attacks in middle school. Because the because it's more of a concern about the it's not about the kid as much as it's the reflection of what the parent is, and I think at the end of the day, like that's all right. Like my my godson has has an IEP, you know yeah. he's autistic, but that kid is amazing. Every single person that comes in contact with him gets a smile on his face. He's the most helpful kid in the world. You know he's not going to be you know some financial manager at Goldman Sachs. But it doesn't mean that his value in life is any less. And what we've done as a society is we've, we've categorized so much what we think is most important to the point where we're now just being run by accountants. We've yeah. limited creativity as a result. Everything within Danielson, and, and including what I walked into teaching with, which I think I was lucky because I, got the, I came in in 2007 and then like everything else happened like right after. Um, it's a it's it's a full corporatization of the education process and what it's building because again every system has an intention it's building system managers it's not building individual kids and that is the real shame and I kind of and I'm not a contrarian to be a contrarian I would not have learned in group work I learned oh. individually I learned by lecturing so to go back to what I was saying in the beginning, I basically, I went to a fairly wealthy high school. 
none of the classes that I, that I was exposed with the exception of science, all of them were notes heavy and they were um, essay heavy. They weren't, here are some documents, figure them out. And I think it's criminal what's happening to the kids today that you're supposed to give a, a child who is a senior that's reading at a fifth grade level um, a document that they can't read. To me, that's child abuse. That's not helping a kid. And the fact that everybody, and where I have grown more mature over the years of teaching is that we all know that this is intentional. We all know that this is intentional. And yeah. that the only thing that people are doing is trying to keep the data up. They're keeping the numbers going. And just like any great Ponzi scheme, what's gonna wind up happening is it's going to collapse. But the danger of this collapse is that you're ruining a human being. You're ruining a generation of beautiful kids and beautiful people who really have a lot to offer to this world. Yeah, I mean, like, they, when I was uh, when I was in high school, right? Um, I I did pretty well, like the first two or three years, but then there was a, a few classes I really struggled with, right? And I could tell, you know. Um, I mean, just like in hindsight, now as a teacher, I got told that this, the teachers even struggled with some of it. They didn't look happy. They didn't look like it was stuff they were passionate about. They were teaching what they had to teach, you know? And then when I went to college, I remember thinking like, man, my high school teachers, they didn't know what they were doing. And I'm, I'm doing so great in college. It's so easy. I'm having a great time. And it was with a lot of stuff like, uh, you know, lectures and, um, independent research and a lot more freedom where they made things more, you, you have a lot more, you know, less constricting uh, assignments where it was kind of more, you have to be creative. Like, I think our essays weren't any real different than what, the, what we were doing in high school, but it was like, sort of, you know, from the fact that we could go write it in a computer lab or, and we'd have to have someone, you know, follow us around the school. And we didn't have to do all, all the different stuff that they want us to do. And it was just like little, little changes that made a huge difference. And then in the way that college was versus high school. And um, the reason I kind of wanted to become a teacher was when I, I heard about the, the teaching fellowship and I actually wanted to be an English teacher. And oh, really? I never would have thought, yeah, I have an associates in um, creative writing. I wanted to be a writer. And I thought I was gonna be like Stephen King, man. That's what I that's what my whole dream was, I swear to God. But all my stories were like more about ninjas instead of horror. So it was just goofy, you know, craziness. And I was really into anime and stuff. And I mean I still am, but um I wanted to be a writer and I wanted and then I wanted to be a writing teacher. And um when I went to school with the fellowship, I remember it was like um they looked they looked at my credits and even though I had a writing degree. They still said, based on my credits, I would I qualify to teach um, special education or science. And I went with uh, special ed and science and became special ed science. Um, and I just stuck with it. And that was like what I got hired for at that first school with that devil woman when I worked with you. Like I mentioned no names, but <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and I just, you know, stuck with it because after, after years after years, I just became, you know, in love with science and um, especially, you know, astronomy and and I got to teach all these different electives with forensics and uh, meteorology all this different stuff so I ended up loving it but I would have never thought I would have been that kind of teacher and it was kind of like the box I was put in and I had to kind of just you know thrive in and right. figure it out um what how did you become a teacher what was your like path to get there it was kind of not really interesting <laughs> to say the least <laughs> I kind of like, I have no romantic sense of it. It's just, um, I feel blessed as a person that intuitively it's something I always knew I wanted to do. And for me, it wasn't as much about teaching as I, as it really was the importance of history to me. So the, really the importance of history as a way to really unlock who we are as, as a person, that inner life that oftentimes like we just don't pay attention to. And, how to, and really thinking how you can help people through the challenges that they experience in life through that is what motivated me to teach. And, you know, 
the Bronx wasn't the first place I wanted to teach, but in a lot of ways, I actually fell in love with it. Oh which, yeah, me too. Same. Which I, which I think is, is, it's a, I never would have thought that um, because the rap is, oh, the Bronx is a difficult place. The Bronx was the first place and I love the kids because they were the first people to actually accept me as gay. Mm. And so uh, it was really kind of this interesting dynamic of like, the students teaching the teacher acceptance while I was teaching them kind of like that type of dynamic. And I just grew into it. But, it, but after a while, um, I don't know, it's not that I've fallen out of love with teaching, um, but, I, but when you begin to see that that's not how everybody else is, mm. you can become deflated by that. And, yeah, I mean, and that's where my, where my struggles then became. Uh, when I really had the freedom to like do what I wanted to do before Danielson, I was golden. I felt, I felt amazing. And now it's like, you did a because but so, I can go home and sleep at night. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. I did my job. Um, it, I, I got into it for the human quality. Um, I, you, you were saying something earlier and it resonated with me. Like you have a son and you come from the perspective of, of having, having a child and, and understanding the caring of a child and how that translates into teaching and how that changes how you, I'm assuming you've changed as a teacher as a result of this. And yeah, for I me, mean, I was, I was always, uh, I've been an uncle since I was in seventh grade, right? Yeah. And um, so, you know, I've, I've been changing diapers since I was playing PlayStation 2. You know, at the same time. So when I when I uh, became a dad, I, I kind of first I thought it would be like being an uncle, and it wasn't. It's a lot harder. Same thing with teaching. I first acted pretty much the same way. I was teaching my students the same way I treat my nephews. You know, I was just trying to teach them things, and I wasn't trying to be too um, stern or because uh, with that fellowship, you have like six weeks of like summer school, like a little boot camp. And then you you have to get a job by the end of that six weeks while doing night school uh, for your grad school, while doing all this other, you know, while teaching, you know, in the, in the day. And so then um, I, uh, I'm doing all this and I'm seeing people like get, like people just get let go. It was like reality TV. Yeah. I'd see people just get, there was like alliances and I'm seeing people get like, like, you know, kicked that, off the so island. Sad. That's so sad. <laughs> that is insane. It is insane. And my buddy Richard, actually, I'm going to say, no, I'm trying to say people's names on this, but I'm going to say his name because he doesn't care about this. But he, he told me like, uh, he, he was in grad school with me and then he got put on a, um, you know, a pip or a tip, whatever. And then he got, he was like, they're going to let me go. And he had to go. Uh, he ended up having to, he came back to grad school though and he paid for his classes and then ended up graduating with the rest of us. But um, they let him go and he would have not become a teacher, you know, because they just, they, he didn't do what they wanted him to do exactly how they wanted to do it. And that was one thing I was like, uh, just really good with younger kids mm -hmm. because of my nephews. And I had to, my, my, by the way, the, the school I was training at where I was doing my whole boot camp, mm -hmm. I was teaching fourth grade, man. I was, but I was hired to be a high school teacher. Right. Those things are polar opposites. You know, that's like, that's like working at a, um, you know, like a Mexican restaurant, but you really want to work at a Chinese food restaurant. There are two right. different, everything's different. You know, it's, it's, some, it's similar, but way different, you know? And it just, it was crazy. And um, a lot of the skills don't translate trying to get kids to clap their, you know, at their answers and all this stuff. They don't want to do that, you know? Like a German and, uh, <laughs> Exactly. And yeah. like, yeah, I, I, I couldn't wait to get out of there. Um, I love the kids. I love everything about it. But it was just, I, I, that wasn't what I wanted to do. And that was where I got placed at. And then I got placed and I, I applied at all these different schools. And um, when I got the job, I had no idea who the principal was even at that school. And I uh, stuck around, obviously. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy I did because I learned a lot. But it was like none of that stuff was uh, stuff I really thought I was going to be doing. I kind of was just, you just were thrown in, you know, you got to learn to swim or you're going to drown. It's 100% the truth. I remember my first year of teaching, I was, 
um, won't use their name either, but I thought a very bad co-teacher, not somebody who was really helping me out or showing me the ropes or anything like that. I would say like, what can I do to help or whatever. Um, screened Requiem for a Dream during class one day, scarred me for life. Um, <laughs> never forget that. And I remember one day I'm like, you know what, screw it. I'm just gonna teach you class. <laughs> that is something you want crazy stories on this. That's just between that, literally it was like every horrible film. I mean, it's a great film, but it's every depressing and horrible film that you can show. That oh, yeah. city of God and everything like that. That was my first co-teacher. Were so, they like edited or was it like- No, 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 no. I'm doing literally the full on. <laughs> the director's cut. <laughs> the director's cut. Like I needed to like take a Klonopin after class. It was just not any good. Jeez. But, but what I kind of had to learn because like my entire personality has changed since being a teacher. I was oh, bullied, yeah. Hell I was bullied yeah. as a kid. I was, um, every time I spoke, people would just like, for whatever reason, just jump down my throat. Even if I said hello to them. Like they must just, they sense some, something in me that they felt they could disrespect. But within teaching, what I've had to develop and what I've learned is you just have to speak up for yourself. And that, oh, most, yeah. and that, and that shuts most people down. And I've learned how to kind of channel my voice, kind of find what my voice actually is. And it takes some trial and error when you're talking with the kids. And that's actually why I valued the lecture portion of teaching. I'm not saying that's the only way to teach, but that's how you find your educator voice. It's yeah. not, instead of just doing the, the rote commands, like you were saying, clap three times if you want a treat. <laughs> None of that shit works. That's but, all. Me, but, but when you say insane, like how does it come across about having, and I, and I hate to generalize, but a group of Caucasian educators walking into the Bronx, basically telling the kids, you must adhere to this. It's, it's insulting, um, it's racist. It doesn't happen in any of the suburban schools. Yeah. And I, it doesn't happen like that. Could you imagine if it was the opposite where it was like a group of teachers from the Bronx went to like, you know, some school in Westchester or Long Island and was like, this is how we're gonna do it. And they, they flipped that. Oh yeah, I would, it would I, would, be, I would pay for my kid to go to that school. That it, would be, <laughs> it would be insane. But that brings me to the other point and that that I've always I've always seen it and I feel like you're providing me a safe space to say this. What yeah, mayoral control, what mayoral control has done though to New York City schools is without the parents' permission, it's allowed for over a decade of social experimentation on black and brown children. Because for example, in suburban schools, they're not putting up with any of this nonsense. You're sitting there for history class. It's not discover by numbers while you can barely read. It's no, you give the kids the notes. Whenever I've either applied or talked to friends and kids in, in the suburbs and I explain how we're told to teach, they think it's absolutely insane. So why is it all right that we have to teach that way in the Bronx? It, it's, or it's, it's a very strange um, portion. And I can't help but think it's because the, the Board of Education in each of the boroughs had been destroyed. So you really don't have a parent to teacher to school connection. That's been destroyed because it's now centralized. And I don't really think that the parents really know what's going on in the school 90% of the time. And they do wanna know. And, it, and, it's, and it's a really, you know, it's a bizarre state of affairs that I hope one day gets light shed on it because it's a true scandal. It's a true well. scandal. Well, also, it's like this as a special education teacher, right? We have IEPs. It's the individual, individual education program. So every kid, you're sitting there saying, this is how Johnny learns, mm -hmm. right? And we're making these plans for these kids. But then <laughs> you have this rubric, the, the Danielson, which is a direct contradiction because it's saying, no, all kids learn this way. <laughs> so if you want to learn, if a kid would learn better using um, lecture, right? right? Like you were saying with history, um, and you you could you'd be limited in your ability to do that. You know, um, it's 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 almost 
uh, insane because you're, you're, you're writing this document that takes a week to do. You know, you have to interview the kid, you interview the parents, you interview all the teachers that the kid has, his guidance counselor, speech pathologist, anybody else the kid has, and they all come up with this whole plan on how this kid would learn, and you, you write this program, and then you have to squeeze it through this funnel of this rubric that is very limiting to what you're allowed to do, because if you're not teaching that way, you know, now you're going to be in trouble as a teacher. Um, like being I think told, it's insane. Like most, most gen ed teachers don't get a copy uh, or they, they, don't, they don't get to read the IEP, you know? And uh, they're supposed to, though. They're supposed to read all of them at the beginning of the year, you know? And I know for a fact, when we worked for the double woman, you know, we never, we never got that. <laughs> we didn't have time where we got to sit there and read every kid's IEP, which we could have done. Instead, we were doing because but so's and <laughs> all this other nonsense. It's just crazy. It's the, it's the um, like I was saying before, it's almost like what's happened is that it, a, a giant class of middle management. All mm -hmm. they're doing, all they're there for is their freaking red stapler. When the entire thing burns down like an office space, they're just gonna be like, my stapler, my stapler. I got, <laughs> I got the data, I got the data, which you then completely made up. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. You completely yeah. made it up. And that's where, again, it, it's a, it's just an absolute scandal. And it, it's one of those things that the farther you get away from it and you look at it, it's grotesque that everybody knows that. Yeah. And I mean, that it's accepted. What and I will it, say now is like with the principal I'm with now, she gives us a lot of freedom. And um, it's no surprise now, this is the school I finally got tenure at, you know? Cause it's like, now that I've been able, I got, thank you. Now that I got, you know, the cuffs taken off, I can really, you know, and the scores went up, everything was better because we got to be very creative and we had a way better, um, just everything was awesome at that school. And I really like it. Than you, with your, He's, who you are, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, you know, I had a little more experience, but I learned definitely some stuff that I was like, I, kids don't learn that way, you know? I remember I got in trouble for, doing uh kahoot which kids love kahoot and they said you should never do kahoot before november here's what's wrong with that i always use it to review for a test because you you get actual data from this game that they play and it's like we review for a test with this i know what you don't know i can tell you what you don't know the, the kid gets uh real-time you know responses on what he's doing right or wrong right. you know to himself and in front of the class so it's a little little sting to it i guess i guess but not really um and he knows oh wow i i was wrong about photosynthesis you know i got that confused with cellular respiration now i gotta you know now when he takes the test he's gonna do better so why should you never do something that is fun highly engaging which is one of the, the hardest things to do is engage the kids these days um like this you know, I was talking about this is like the biggest, you can't compete with this. You know, there's no, there's no lesson plan that can have that can beat a cell phone. Cause I don't know what they have on Instagram and Snapchat and all this other Facebook. I can't write a lesson that good. But what I can do is utilize this in my lesson. You know, I can have, I can play a game like that and kids will learn right away what they know, what they don't know and what they need to learn, you know? And- well, formative assessment. Oh yeah. Go yeah. here. Formative assessment's a bad thing now, right? Mm. But yeah, you're not supposed to do it before November. November's the third of the year, man. We we talk about don't do it before. That, that was the dumbest feedback I ever got. Yeah, I it reminds me of one time I was told um, not to teach vocabulary, that the kids I, are supposed to figure it out on their own through the reading, and I'm like, the whole point of educating is to not frustrate. There should be some challenge, but it shouldn't be, mister, I don't know what this word is. Well, I, I know what that word is. I can't tell it to you. What do you think it means? Because again, that's never how we were taught how to do vocabulary. In the richer high schools, it's literally, here are the words, here is what it means. Now go do your reading. It's, yeah. just, it's just bizarre. We, do they not do vocabulary tests anymore for history? 
uh, at this, I, I managed to get to a uh, new school during the pandemic. So right okay. now, this is, uh, I can't fairly judge them on this. But in the past, absolutely not. We were told it's a level one on the DOK or whatever nonsense it is. It's anything that but has a line after it, you can't do. So no fill in the blank or anything. Wow. Because we would have like, uh, when I would read the tests, because I would, you know, always read your eyes test when i would read the uh history test it's mostly about terms you know and it's dates and stuff though. man it's insane yeah <laughs> i always hated um american history uh more than global and uh or you know world history whatever they called it back then but the reason was like american history it almost makes it seem like you know Africa was just hunter gatherers that were slaves and then Lincoln freed them and then they were in trouble, you know, for a little while, but then Martin Luther King and then now racism's over. And that's just such a, a very insane and um it can be one-sided view of history. One hundred percent. I actually um I'm a better history teacher for having taught global history for 10 years first. Yeah. Now I'm beginning to teach U.S. history um, for the first time since like 2009. And going to your point, if you teach U.S. history in the real way, you're gonna have a massive revolution on the street. <laughs> yeah. There's no other way. That if you teach it the way that it happened, everybody is going to realize that you've been screwed over. But what it does, I think, really, really well in the most evil way, the way that U.S. history has been traditionally taught, is it's not that it just it glosses over the experience of Black people in the United States, but it tries to do like the rainbow. It's like yeah. Martin Luther King, and then we have integration, and now everything is fine. Yeah. And it's a it's a very um, suburban it's a very tranquil way of saying that everything's okay. And that's mirrored in the society where you have to be an optimist, almost to the point where you're, you're manic. Um, nobody's, nobody can really interpret anything that's negative anymore. So for example, over the summer, when, when we're seeing the Black Lives Matter movement and then in March with, with George Floyd, it's all complete understandable anger. And then to see the reaction of people who, who viewed that as a threat to the United States, it's like you didn't even take the time to learn your own history to have a comment on what's going on right now. Yeah. I mean, it's like when they, I, I think the way that they taught us history for US history was kind of like, it would start with like England, right? And they would talk about how uh, the, the pilgrims came from Europe, right? Yeah. And they came here. And then there was just slaves. Like, <laughs> and then they, it like, stops. They and then like, explained the slave trade, I think. And then it was like, uh, they talked about slavery and cotton, you know, a lot. And the cotton, Eli Whitney and the cotton gin, you know. Can I interrupt then, you really quick? Yeah. And I hate to tell a funny story in the middle of something so serious. <laughs> this reminds me. <laughs> of in eighth grade <laughs> in eighth grade they took us to see Amistad and I was forced to sit next to my English teacher where you had full frontal male nudity while I'm sitting next to this like 60 year old woman and it was the most <laughs> it was single-handedly the most uncomfortable experience but I gave I give them credit because they at least attempted to show it yeah. to show the horror of it but like my whole issue though was like it wasn't until I got to college, and I was thinking about college, that was way better than high school, was like, you got to actually learn some shit. You know, but it was yeah. until I got there that you you learned where the black people came from, you know? Like, it was like, the white people came from England, and some came from Spain, and some came, you know, and it was just all this. You ignore where black people came from. Yeah, and they're like, they're Africa. They act like it's one country, you know? It's insane. And it was like, I remember learning about, like, uh, Mansa Musa and all this, Mm -hmm. richest man in history you yeah. know black guy they don't tell you about him in school why like, it's just crazy that would what be what they do is that it's it's the um 
how can I say this? It's in European thinking, it's this idea that industrialization made specifically the British better than everybody else. And the fact that you have the mixture of Christianity, that you have the mixture of empire building, the mixture of everything's okay? Yeah. No, 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 you have the mixture of all of these things. That's when you start to get to that idea of white supremacy developing. And so anything, again, that you were saying that's challenging that idea, they're not gonna wanna teach in the curriculum. But you keep going on to this idea of like high school and college. And I always find this interesting with history because the way that they're always packaging it in high school is that it's a survey course. So within a survey course, you have to run through it versus when you're in college, you can also have partly like survey courses that are truncated or you have more specialized courses. One second. Yeah, not a problem. I had to get my charger from my computer, Dad. Um, yeah, no worries. Uh, I'll edit all that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, I think go ahead, getting, go ahead. But I think you were getting to like a really good point because what white people have a difficult time understanding is the horror that they unleashed, and how do you explain that? How do you talk about that? And the only way to do that is to be honest about it. It's not that you know slavery is a unique phenomenon, but what happened in the United States was unique with chattel slavery. It was unique with the use of scientific racism. It's, yeah. unique, it's unique in the sense of the fact that you must think of the United States as an apartheid state. You can't think of the United States as this merry band of states that got along and you know just had a small little argument and broke up. No, it was literally, we, were, we have been an apartheid state. And I think for many Americans who bought into the American dream of the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, that was their reality because that's what the propaganda told them that they needed to be and to believe. And that, that black people were their enemy, even if they didn't say it out loud, which many of them did in the period, the subtext was there, that economic competition is there, social competition is there whatever it may be, and that you must maintain your dominance at all costs. And so I think that we're kind of what a lot you're seeing right now with, um, I just looked at my phone and you're having a member of Congress say um, right now for the Republicans to be just as violent as Antifa. The reason you're seeing that is because that very thing you're speaking about is shattering in front of us. And we're, and we're witnessing it and it's, a good thing to see break down. It's just gonna get crazy. I mean, like people think that, um, some people still think that, you know, racism either doesn't exist or it's over or whatever, or, you know, that certain, certain ideas aren't hateful or racist. And like over the break, right, I got into a, uh, discussion on the internet, which is always the best place to hear other people's ideas, you know? And it was just a complete stranger. I don't know this guy, you know? But uh, he, I'm going to share some of this with you. This, these were his, uh, this was this guy's actual thoughts and ideas. And and what, is there a context? Is there like a first post? He, he said, so we had an argument on the internet with the, uh, it's me and this white guy. We're arguing about slavery. Okay. And he said, uh, first he began that the Confederate flag isn't racist and that it made the following, he made the following analogy that he said, imagine if you had a bunch of rabbits and the government said you had to let them go and you had bought them and given them food and shelter. And then he, he was also trying to say that um, it isn't, slavery isn't even free labor because you uh, have to, you know, give them room and board. 
and water, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I replied, credit you for know. not going through the screen and like strangling. <laughs> yeah, you already they, have two issues off the bat. The, the, what he just did was compare black people to animals immediately right off the bat in his analogy to rabbits. Is what oh, that's I, my first, that was my first comment. I was like, well, first off, black people aren't rabbits. <laughs> so I was like, let's just, let's just get that clear. There's a there's no Venn diagram where it's like black people, rabbits, you know, it's just they're two separate circles. They have nothing in common. Um, and then uh, and second, you know, if that, if that was the case, right, if the government had said, hey, man, you gotta let these rabbits go. I'm not going to start a war over the rabbits and kill and rape rabbits and try to force them to work for free, you know, in the first place. Um, in fact, he said room and board too really like bothered me because it's like that's that's the problem with racism. Like you you think it's like, like when I think room and board, I think of like summer camp or college. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you think slavery was like Animal House. Like like it's just they're just having fun and it's insane. No man, it wasn't. There's no room and board. It's, there was it was it was not. It not, was not. It wasn't summer camp. No, exactly. Like people are insane, and that's it is like when I hear something like that. There's just like within the South, they use slaves so that they could have a lifestyle of leisure, and they basically inherited the aristocracy that was leaving Europe. I think oftentimes people forget that the class system in the South is is European based, clearly, and that. <laughs> by affording them the lifestyle where they can fan themselves and have them in juleps and all that fun stuff, <laughs> they all of a sudden had to work. And that's where you start to get the problems with the abolition of slavery in the South and the destruction of the aristocracy of, of like the white gentility and all of that. And so yeah. when I hear somebody like that speak, I just don't feel that they even understand what it is. But then you have the myth-making after the Civil War about, um, you know, a lost cause, that we were always right. It was just the War of Northern Aggression that happened and, they, and that we were being too economically successful and they needed to take that away. You start getting those like lies fed in that create this idea that the Confederate flag isn't a racist symbol. It, exactly. It's a rebel symbol. And, it's like, how do you, it, it, the way, and I hate to be, again, I, I, I don't know what I can say on this podcast, but it's like watching, uh, it's like, like watching, no views. have you seen the Nexium cult documentary? No. It's, it's the sex cult. And it's, it's the way that they like, um, how can I explain this? The way that they like groomed people um, into sexual predation almost without them even knowing. That's insane. It is insane. And it's like, how do you break people out of a cult mentality? And I think that that's kind of like where we are right now. It's like, how do you break these people out so that they understand like, holy shit, this is what I've been believing. This is, these have been my set of ideas. I got, I got a great way to break them out of it. It's a it's education. <laughs> education. We we could totally teach this to children uh, that you know black people aren't rabbits, you know, and oh. all of a sudden these wild. I, and I remember I looked up the guy. He was from like Missouri or something. So, but to they go might not have the best thing about education. You have to add in the idea of redlining. Most yeah. white people have had, like the high school I went to had two black students because the way that they draw the lines, we in this country don't even have to interact with other groups that we don't want to. And so that lack of just being socially connected or just even in some form of like distance to each other, there are many people, you can go down South and you wouldn't have somebody of color from miles away. And for them to see somebody that is black or, or Latino or Asian is a novelty to them. Yeah, I mean, when I went to school, um, like I always tell when I'm from Dayton, Ohio, but I'm actually from Miamisburg, Ohio, which is right outside of Dayton, which where the Dayton Mall is. And it's like if someone from Dayton heard me say this, say, you're not from Dayton, you're from Miamisburg. And it's not the same thing, but it's it's that's just an easier way to say it. Mm-hmm. So 
in my school, and this, you know, I was born in 88. So when I was in kindergarten, I was the only person of color in the classroom. And it's the same way for first grade, second grade. I'd see other black kids, but they had their own classroom. There was like one black kid per classroom. Mm -hmm. There's maybe like four different classes going on for our grades. So I'd see someone, you know, at recess or something, and we would meet and talk and those, but it was, that was it. It was like one black kid per class. And that was until I got to like third grade. You know, then when I got to fourth grade, they had built these new apartments. And it was like, like I lived in Conifers, and then they built another one next to it called Spring Valley. Mm -hmm. Next to that, they built Kobe Run, and there were all these different apartments. So now we have more black people, and it got to be like five per mm -hmm. class, you know. So instead of one, it was like five out of the thirty kids. There was five black kids. It was awesome. I loved it, and it's pretty much like that. It got you know the numbers increased by the time I got to high school, because um, like once you get to sixth grade, they brought all the elementary schools together, and then seventh and eighth grade and then high school, we were all together. So I got to meet just a lot more kids. And that's when I made like the most friends, you know? And like, I remember like being in like first grade and I don't, I don't remember what kids said it or what, what the exact situation was, but like someone called me the N word and I told my mom and it was like, she wasn't even like, like she was mad, but she was also just like, like really like first grade <laughs> why does this happen in first how how does this happen in first grade like they're, they're still learning about like you know spelling you know and and reading like they're reading like the grinch you can have like a complex understanding of race but you can't spell exactly like you're reading the grinch and you're learning like you know five plus six right you know and then at recess, after eating grilled cheese and tomato soup at lunch, you know, you slide down the slide and just yell that word. Like, hey, really, man? Like, it was just crazy. And it's like word hatred. Yeah. Like, like how? How is that? How is that what happens? And like, the best way I can explain it, you know, the, from what I understand is like, some of these people, man, and it wasn't all of them, you know, but. But some of them, you know, some of these people, they had to have learned racism uh, from their parents because their life sucked and it was so terrible. And that's the one thing they were like clinging to, you know, was that they're better than black people. It was an idea that they had from their parents, you know, and it was this it was this racism that because there's no other way I could really understand why it would happen. And so I would want to validate what you're saying. I think that you can't have a conversation like that without it interacting with class. Oh, yeah. And, and a story um, is clearly not similar to yours, but within the same vein. Um, I remember like how I told you, I'm literally from the other side of the tracks, but I yeah. go to this rich school. Um, I remember my mom coming home one day crying. And I go, mom, what's wrong? And she goes, uh, there's, I won't use the name, but this person um, is petitioning the school board to redraw the district lines. Wow. So that, because where I came, because my neighbors were black, my neighbors were Indian, yeah. to literally draw us out from going to those schools. That's insane. And so what I, I think that what I have a real hard time with today are these like woke warriors who I'm like, I know your mother was like basically a clanswoman. <laughs> like, I don't really care. Yeah. Like, and so to me, it's where, and it's a complicated conversation, no matter how you're going to cut this, because what has happened in this country is they've pitted people of color against poor whites when there's more in common. When oh, yeah. this richer, like, like my fiance, like I'm this white guy going to a, you know, a Puerto Rican Thanksgiving the exact same Thanksgiving that I had at my house. There's no difference. It's the same thing. But it's amazing how these rich white liberals are, are making this more exotic. Like, oh my God, like, yeah. they, like they, get, they get off on this. And, it's, and to me, that's why it's like, clearly for me, coming from a, from a white perspective, I've experienced it more on the class end. Like the fact that like my, my fiance is a person of color 
I've lost white friends, or I'm told that the only reason that I'm with my fiance is because I have some sort of like Latin fetish wow. instead of genuine love. That's insane. So like, I, 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 have, I have seen it. I, I, I have lost friends. There are people I don't even talk to anymore because people, it's all about social status in this country. And you hit the nail on the head when you were like, you don't know how to wrap your head around it. It, what you just nailed was the, was the economic jealousy and competition. Think of Black Wall Street, for example, mm. and how that was torched down because yeah. that community was doing better than the local white community. Yeah, and it's like, in Dayton, that is like the most segregated city that I've ever been to, you know, and I've ever seen in all my travels, which are all domestic, but regardless, um, because it's literally like all the black people live on the west side, all the white people live on the east side, and they're all broke in this in this one area, right? And they hate each other. They they hate each other, you know. And it's 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 insane. But hate by design, and it makes everyone and south or north of that city are doing great, and they, they get along better. I feel like, but it's like it's crazy, and yeah, it's. Hate by design, exactly. Hate by design. And it makes me always, that's why I'm, I'm and I am only speaking for myself. And like, I just, I always get suspicious of these wealthy, well-to-do people who've all of a sudden discovered the cure to racism. Because you're not living in diverse neighborhoods. You're not living, you are not walking the walk that you're trying to philosophize out to the general public. You're not doing it yourself. Yeah, and it's like people who say things like, you know, Obama caused all the racial division. How? What did he do? Just because he was president? Because And they, oh, I didn't like that he said uh, Trayvon Martin, you know, his son would look like that. That's not, that shouldn't be something to offend you. It should be something that makes you, like, open your eyes. And it's it's just crazy. I don't know, man. I think because it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a psychological thing because... It's like confronting a shoplifter. And they're like, oh, I didn't steal that. And it's like, but we have it on video. Oh, that wasn't <laughs> me. But you can, but just like applying that logic to these types of people, um, once they're confronted with their own behavior that's negative, it's immediate gaslighting. We experienced it with Devil Woman, for example, in a completely different context. 100%. It, it, it's gaslighting. It's, um, it's, it's quite frankly, there's an awesome book um, on narcissism. I'll send it to you later. Maybe you can link it in your description. And it, it really comes down to white narcissism, that you can do no wrong and that the ego is so fragile. And like, I, like, I feel free to say this in this conversation. I've been told that I'm an end lover, for example. Uh, yeah, I have been told by other white people racialized terms because either my friends were not white or for other situations. And so it, it's, it's a disturbing and very narcissistic, like racial cult that has developed. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I'm blabbing with this, but it just, it seems like that's more of the answer. No, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I got to wrap it up soon, but I got some, oh, I'm going to say a couple things real quick. So yeah, yeah. like QAnon, right? And all other conspiracies, right? I don't care. JFK, 9-11, Bigfoot. I'm not saying none of these things happen the way they're saying happen, right? But I'm saying there's a certain group of people who believe all this stuff, right? And if you if you if you talk to them about black people being killed by police, they kind of are like, "Well, we didn't see the whole video," or well, what, "What was you know what happened you know before the video? What happened you know we we don't know the context or." This person had priors. They did something else before, you know? But and the police this... the night before 9-11, all the things were set up. Exactly. Like, yes. just give Black people the same benefit of the doubt that you give Bigfoot and 9-11. <laughs> you know, like, that's laugh. all I ask. That's but all I ask. It's all... <laughs> but it's actually, it's, it's, the, it's the, um, the way that you say that points to the absurdity of how people think. Yeah, like they, they, they would never, well, uh, Trayvon Martin, you know, he was, 
he was he he beat up uh george you know no 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 I, I don't care about that i don't care about that what i'm saying is the kid was buying skittles you know or eric Gardner, he was selling cigarettes that's all he did you saying he deserved to die for selling cigarettes you ever bought a cigarette for somebody you ever smoked a cigarette you bought a cigarette for somebody you deserve to die now for doing that that's insane it is insane and it's stupid and it goes and, i didn't yeah. have to wrap up but all of this has to go towards like at least in our lifetime, this over-militarization of the police. Yeah. The tactics that they've learned, because what they've learned after 9-11 is anybody that has a skin color that's darker than pale should immediately be seen as a threat. And not I'm not saying it wasn't that way before, but no, you have no, no, to think no, of 9-11, it's, it's been hyped up more. Yeah. That everything has to be policed. Everything has to be made into these gated communities so that everybody can feel safe. How else is think, New York gentrified? Yeah, and I think now that it's like the people have a camera everywhere they go. There's a camera on every corner. They carry a camera in their pocket. You know, can't deny the, All this, the, the, the Yeah, and the social media. You can you can just live stream something. Now it's just it's more they're, they're being put on a, a pedestal. Uh, I mean, put off the pedestal. You know, that the police right. run before. And yeah, you see it like. I could do a whole other podcast of just messed up police stories. <laughs> but yeah, man, I, I gotta I gotta take care of my son. He's waking up, I think. But um it was, it was great having you. No, 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 yeah, yeah. This is great. And we're gonna do another one, man. Let me know when, okay? All right, man. Love you, man. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Be well. Peace. Bye. Okay, that was it. That was the episode. And honestly, we had no idea that Trump was going to end up doing something crazy today. <laughs> and if I don't even name what it is, you wouldn't know, but you, it doesn't matter because he does some crazy shit every day. So yeah, it ended up just kind of lining up with the theme of the podcast. And uh, hey man, I hope you guys enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun and uh, have a great one. The After School Spectacular.